Good evening. Leisure, by the way, uh, means leisure. <laughs> it's, um, it's great to be here uh, and, and, and see half, half of your lovely faces. Um, my name's Jesse. I am the worship pastor here at the Kingdom Vineyard, which means I'm normally behind a guitar, but today I'm behind a lectern, such as it is. Um, uh, we are continuing our series this evening in Genesis. We are in chapter four. Uh, story so far, God made everything. It was really good. Adam and Eve screwed up. Now we're paying the price. Okay. Um, my friend Jenny is going to come up and read this passage for us from the uh, NLT. Uh, if you have Bibles, please follow along. Otherwise, it will be on the screen for you. Uh, grab that microphone there. Now Adam had sexual relations with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant. When she gave birth to Cain, she said, With the Lord's help, I have produced a man. Later she gave birth to his brother and named him Abel. When they grew up, Adam be Abel became a shepherd, while Cain cultivated the ground. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. Why are you so angry, the Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You'll be accepted if you do what is right, but if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at your door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it to be its master. One day Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Afterward, the Lord asked Cain, where is your brother? Where is Abel? I don't know, Cain responded. Am I my brother's guardian? But the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are cursed and banished from the ground, which has swallowed your brother's blood. No longer will the ground yield crops for you, no matter how hard you work. From now on, you'll be a homeless wanderer of the earth. Cain replied to the Lord, My punishment is too great for me to bear. You have banished me from the land, from, my present, from your presence. You have made me a homeless wanderer. Anyone who finds me will kill me. The Lord replied, No, for I will give a, se give a sevenfold punishment to anyone who kills you. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain to warn anyone who might try to kill him. So Cain left the Lord's presence and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain had sexual relations with his wife, and she became pregnant with, and gave birth to Enoch. Then Cain founded a city, which he named Enoch after his son. Enoch had a son named Irad. Irad became the father of Mehujal. Mehujal became the father of Methusel, and Methusel became the father of Lamech. Lamech married two women. The first was named Ada, and the second was named Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal, who was the first of those who raise livestock and live in tents. His brother's name was Jubal, the first of all who play the harp and the flute. Lamech's other wife, Zillah, gave birth to a son named Tubal-Cain. He became an expert in forging tools of bronze and iron. Tubal-Cain had a sister named Nama. One day, Lamech said to his wives, Adder and Zillah, hear my voice. Listen to me, you wives of Lamech. I have killed a man who attacked me, a young man who wounded me. If someone who kills Cain is punished seven times, then the one who kills me will be punished 77 times. Adam had sexual relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to another son. She named him Seth, for she said, God has granted me another son in the place of Abel, whom killed Cain. When Seth grew up, he had a son named Enosh, and that, and that time people first began to worship the Lord by name.
Great work on those names there. Sexual relations, what a euphemism, eh? It's, um, I didn't have that written down, that's just me, sorry. So I have named this talk The Adam Family. From God to Nod. And as I, uh, as I labored over what to say to you this evening, I threw away one sermon in favor of the one I've actually ended up with. Uh, I remembered the teaching philosophy of my most significant Bible teacher, uh, Toby or Foster. Uh, he always strived not just to preach his own interpretations of the scriptures, but, uh, but rather to equip the saints, that's you, uh, to be better readers, to be better interpreters of the scriptures yourselves. So although I do have some observations uh, of what I believe this text has to say to us uh, in this place at this time, and I will offer those in a moment. First, what I want to do is say some things about how I read this text. And I hope that along the way, if I manage to offend any long and deeply held views uh, that you've had of the scriptures, I hope we can still be friends and that it can be the start of a conversation rather than the end of one. And I hope that conversation can happen over a pint at pub church on Friday afternoons. Now, when Jim uh, gave the introduction to this whole series on Genesis, he met head on the controversial question of whether Genesis is a scientific, historical account of exactly when and how the universe was created. And I think he did that brilliantly and sensitively. So if you want the brilliant and sensitive version, I advise you to go and listen to that podcast. But instead of Jim, today you have me. And I'm here to tell you that I think these texts are simply not in that category. They're not in the category of scientific or historical reporting, but they are, they are theological in nature. Now, before you run out the door, let me say a couple of things about that claim. First, I am in no way denying that these texts are completely absent of any historical reality. By that, I mean there may have been and probably even were actual living human beings called Cain and called Abel. And they may have been and probably even were actual blood brothers. And Cain probably did murder his brother Abel. But what my point is, my contention here is, is that all of those things are beside the point. That, um, that by reading it that way, we miss what is actually going on in the text. And as a consequence of reading it that way, uh, the possibility that they never existed doesn't, in fact, in, in my life, make even the slightest dent in what I believe these texts are intended to communicate. So, um, although Cain and Abel seem to be the main characters in this story, uh, this is less about them and more about the story of God and the people that he created and the purposes for which he created them and the ways in which we screwed it up and continue to screw it up, and the ways that God, in his goodness, is constantly drawing us back, constantly making a way for his original plan, his original designs that we heard about in Genesis 1 and 2, to break through, even though we work so hard to soil them, 
that's Jesse speak for the sake of the recording. You are free to translate that in your own imaginations. This text is about how our offenses against one another have their origins in the offenses we commit against God. I'll say that again because that's my main point. Our offenses against one another as human beings have their origins in the offenses that we commit against God. So, as you heard this passage or as you've read it before, you probably had the same questions as me. Questions like, where did Cain's wife come from? And I have, of course, asked that question over and over again. And when we're creating safe spaces for discussion and debates, we often say that there's no such thing as a stupid question. But I disagree. <laughs> I think that the question, where did Cain's wife come from, is a stupid question. But I don't think that makes us stupid for asking it. The scriptures invite us to be inquisitive. I'm inquisitive. I'm just starting a master's program. If I uh, weren't inquisitive, I wouldn't be back at university at my ripe age. I don't think it's stupidity to acknowledge that there are things that we don't know about or understand, including the kinds of questions that we ought to be asking. That is wisdom, not stupidity. So when we're creating these safe spaces, let's uh, not deny that there are things such as stupid questions, but let's make it okay to ask stupid questions. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in his brilliant book called A Grief Observed, uh, said this, all nonsense questions are unanswerable. How many hours are there in a mile? Is yellow square or round? Probably half the questions we ask, half our great theological and metaphysical problems, are like that. Heaven will solve our problems, but not, I think, by showing us subtle reconciliations between all our apparently contradictory notions. The notions instead will be knocked out from under our feet. We shall see that there never was any problem. And I think where did Cain find a wife is in that category of question. I think this passage isn't here to tell us about how humanity spread across the earth, but to teach us more broad theological themes. So what is the broad theological theme that I believe God wants to teach us from this passage today? I said it earlier. I repeat it now. Our offenses against one another have their origins in the offenses that we commit against God. Cain's entire conception of who God is and how he relates to God is skewed from the start, and God knows it from the start. He has fundamentally misconceived the relationship that is supposed to exist between himself and God, and there's various clues to this. First of all, Although Abel brings the best portions, that's the, the, the fatty bits, uh, from the firstborn of his flock, Cain, by contrast, it says, just brings some of his crops. He hasn't realized, contrary to Abel, he hasn't realized that his entire crop is a gift from God in the first place. And this idea of a tithe, that is a, a gift of 10% 
of income to the Lord is something that I remember completely uh, being redefined in my own life when I realized it wasn't about grudgingly giving away 10% of what I had worked so hard to create. It was, in fact, about celebrating that I got to keep 90% of it. That 10% went from being a burden to a joy when I just flipped that in my own understanding. Anyway, Cain didn't get any of this. He was trying to buy favor from God with his gift. And he was mad when he didn't get what he thought he'd pay for. Secondly, Cain's entire posture towards God is revealed not only in the act of murder, but also in the act of lying about it when God asks. God doesn't ask Abel, uh, doesn't ask Cain where Abel is because he uh, lacks the information. God knows exactly what's happened. But Cain reveals his own heart when he thinks he can lie to God and get away with it. This entire um, interaction is a reflection of Adam and Eve's sin and their subsequent dialogue with God about it. But there are two key differences. Adam and Eve, first of all, have to be persuaded to sin. Whereas God appeals to Cain not to sin, and yet Cain goes ahead and kills his brother. He has no really goading him towards this action. This is, he's done this of his own volition. And secondly, whereas Adam and Eve instantly admit their actions to God, Cain instead lies about it. So by this second generation, alienation between humanity and God is deepening. And sin is consequently becoming ever more entrenched into human nature. And this goes deeper and deeper as we're told in the rest of the chapter. So from Adam uh, to Lamech, we see clever use of the symbolic number seven, which indicates fullness and completeness. After the first seven days in the first chapter in Genesis, we have a declaration of God's goodness and of the goodness of everything that has flowed from the hands and breath of God. But by contrast, we then have seven generations of humanity from Adam to Lamech. Humanity starts its journey as being very good because it flows from the hands and the breath of God himself. But by the seventh generation, the naive error of Adam and Eve has degenerated into the boasting and even celebration of murder that we see in Lamech. So the fullness of God is represented in the seven days as God made them, but the fullness of humanity here is represented in the seven generations as we have made them. Seven days of pure goodness are followed by seven generations of progressive rejection of that goodness. Our offenses against one another have their origins in the offenses that we commit against God. Alienation between brothers and between sisters is a direct consequence of alienation between us and God. So what can we do about this? Well, the rest of Scripture has a whole bunch of amazing commandments 
to help us know the course to take. So in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 6, 5, it says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That is the first and greatest commandment. And in Leviticus 19.18, it says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. I love that bit, by the way. Uh, You should love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because I am the Lord. And these are what Jesus calls the greatest commandments. Our love, our adoration, our worship of God, when it is born out of a reconciled relationship with him, uh, where he holds the right place in our lives, it gives rise to an overflow. And that overflow is a relationship with one another that is characterized not by grudges or by vengeance, but by love. And God not only commands these things of us, but he also makes it possible for us. In uh, Hebrews, it talks about Jesus as our high priest who has cleansed us and purified us. And the, uh, the result of that is the possibility that we are to enter boldly, courageously, confidently into the presence of God, having our hearts cleansed. The presence of God is where we were made to be, but we had been banished from the presence of God because of this corrupt desire to be independent of him. But that's not the end of the story. That was an amazing word that that Aline brought us earlier, Isaiah uh, 61.3. I've just noted it down just to finish again with... um, To all who mourn, he will give a crown of beauty for ashes, a joyous blessing instead of mourning, festive praise instead of despair. And in their righteousness, they will be like oaks that the Lord has planted for his own glory. And it reminded me of a quote by the late theologian uh, John Webster, uh, who was a teacher here and died a few years ago. He said in his book, Holiness, praise, which we've been doing this evening, praise is the great act of rebellion against sin. The great repudiation of our wicked refusal to acknowledge God to be the Lord. I'll say that again. Praise is the great act of rebellion against sin. The great repudiation of our wicked refusal to acknowledge God to be the Lord. And it's interesting in this passage that we've just read, sin, it's a difficult word, sin, isn't it? But here we're we're told that it's not just a category of action that we commit against the Lord. It's also this this, um, malevolent force that hungers for us that is actually, um, it desires us. It longs to have us in its grip. And so we flirt with it and we entertain it at the peril of our very lives. And it's from the grip and the power 
of sin, that Jesus came to save us. But he didn't just come to save us from something. He came to save us for something. And that's this praise. Praise is the great act of rebellion against sin, which crouches and desires you. To all who mourn, he's going to give a crown of beauty for ashes. Let's uh, turn our faces towards him and seek not ashes, but a crown of blessing. Let's seek not despair, but seek instead to praise him. And then he will plant us like oaks for his own glory. That's what I have to say uh, this evening. Why don't you stand and I'll pray to you, pray for you. Yeah, Father, I, right now I just want to pray for anyone in this room that is uh, at war with sin and feeling the uh, feeling the wounds of that fight. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that sin is a defeated foe. And we choose you. We choose life instead of death. We seek your glory instead of ours. I, uh, this is a bit bold, but I think maybe there's some among us who um, have been kidding ourselves that we can keep secret from God uh, some, uh, some act, maybe a single act, maybe a habitual act. And I think this evening he just wants to say to you, do not be downcast. Do not be dejected. Holy Spirit, I ask you to empower those who are in this battle and feel like they're losing. You know, this church, one of, one of its many benefits is that it has these, um, these little nearly bits on the, on the pews that are in front of you. Like, feel absolutely no pressure to do so, but likewise feel absolutely no um, uh, embarrassment in getting on your knees before the Lord.
He is a good, good father and longs for reconciliation with you. May the blessing of our Father and the victory of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit be with you all.